What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. If you don't know me, I'm Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas. That's my home base. I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. I help companies discover and articulate their purpose and thread it through their culture and operations. I work with organizations to develop inspirational leaders who create cultures where people actually want to come to work and do their best. And I provide programs like the Grab Your Gusto that enable individual team members to discover and unleash their passion and purpose at work to catalyze fulfillment, engagement, and productivity. You can learn more about me and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com or Gusto-Now.com. Let me thank my partner and sponsor, WorkProud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everyone wants to know they matter and that the work they do is meaningful and appreciated. WorkProud helps companies do just that through their mobile platform that is built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. WorkProud empowers HR and business leaders to help create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their work and proud of their company. Learn more about WorkProud and a recent study they've commissioned about pride in work at workproud.com forward slash Dr. Elise Cortez. Click on download the WorkProud study to get your actual copy. With us today is Samuel Cook. He is the founder, chief product architect, strategist, and storytelling marketer of Sanity Desk Business Operating Network, a full stack software solution for experts and small service businesses to launch and manage their businesses online. We'll be talking about this, his vision for a better digital world and the culture he's designed at Sanity Desk. Also in for, talking about his how his studies have informed um, his work and his culture, and also what he's done from being in the military and how that brings it to bear in his the, in the culture he's creating there at the company. He joins us today from Los Angeles, although he gallivants across the globe. Samuel, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you, Lisa, and it's, it's great to be here with you and your audience. It is, and you know, we enjoy a wonderful global audience, and let's just start this conversation by talking about someone we both have in common and thank her for bringing us together, and that would be Ellie Tahar of, of Conscious Trader. She's in New Zealand. I picked her up in the pandemic sometime last year. We became great, great friends. She sent me several people to the show, and she said, you got to talk to Samuel Cook. This guy is up to something all over the place. you got to have him on the show. So Ellie, thanks again for bringing me a fantastic guest. Well, thank you also, L.A. She, um, I'm privileged to connect with people all over the world through our work and uh, looking forward to diving in. You know, there's a million places we could start, Samuel, but um, let's just start quickly here. Um, first, the very fact that you went to West Point is just so impressive in and of itself. I know that was years ago, but would you start by just telling us kind of the journey of why did you go that route? Why the military route? Why West Point? What was that about for you? Well, I was um, born in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I was the third of five children. Um, my father was a history teacher. And this was something that as three out of five, you have to learn how to get enough attention, enough attention for food and precious resources in a family, you know, regular middle-class family growing up in a not so well-off society as Belfast was at that time. And I learned very early that if I talked about history, uh, I think my grandfather was visiting during the Falklands War 
which I was about four years old at the time, I started comment, commenting on the news. And my grandfather, who used to like to turn off his hearing aid, was, was saying to my father, you know, this, this, this one's a little bit intelligent. You might want to pay attention to him. So I think at that point, my dad, uh, who would pass off child raising to my mom, would, would speak to us once we had something intelligent to say. So I, I grew up studying history at the feet of my father, who was a history teacher, read a lot of Winston Churchill and probably my favorite historical figure growing up. And, and uh, when I moved to the, U the U.S. at 10 years old, I dragged my parents out to see all the Civil War battlefields. Um, so then I think at the age of 16 or 17, I realized West Point still existed. It wasn't just some history book uh, artifact. And I remember my brother telling me, you know, that's where the best, uh, most talented young people go. Um, and I got curious by it. I had just lost the Louisiana trumpet competition. I was a avid trumpet player growing up, a musician. I thought I, I wanted a change of scenery. So I applied for West Point and focused uh, a year of my life just getting ready for that application and, and got in. And I was from Louisiana, which there weren't as many strong applicants from that state because they, they try and keep it geographically balanced as many other states. But I got in and uh, really had, a, had an amazing experience there actually in terms of the people I met, the education, the mentors and, and things like that. But that was before 9-11 happened. I graduated in May of 2020 or 2000. So it was different, I think, more innocent times to join the Army at that point. Mm -hmm. And what did you want to do with your career in the Army? You know, at that point, I don't think I, I don't think I knew when I went there what I wanted to do. Uh, I think one of the most important decisions when you go to West Point, because the first year is really hard, is not why did you go there, but why did you stay? <laughs> why did you, mm -hmm. why did you stick it out? And and I think I stuck it out because I had this inkling that I I'd, I was studying history at the greatest institution in the country to study history taught by people who'd made history. And, and one of the, the mottos at West Point was, you know, the history that we teach is, um, was made by the people we taught. And uh, I remember that famous poster as I was walking around the history department. So I fell in love with history, which I always was as a child, but I, I confirmed despite physics and math teachers wanting me to, to join. I was very talented at mathematics like my older brother. I, I decided to study history, which um, was was an amazing choice. I think I really stayed there to study history. And I also had this sense going to West Point that in some small way, I was fascinated by the opportunity to be part of history a little bit. And uh, little did I know what, what that would mean when I graduated, but that was always, I think, just a desire to, in some small way, participate in, in, in shaping our, our society and our future. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back to something that I find very interesting that I connect in terms of dots with your with your history uh, learning as well as teaching. But before we do that, I do want to learn a little bit about the tours that you had, because I know those tours for you are have left some understandably indelible impressions on you and given you experiences and, and helped you understand yourself in the world because of them. So share a bit about those experiences of serving and, and what you learned and what they taught you. Well, the, fir the first tour I was in Iraq, I was uh, serving in 2005 and six in uh, South Baghdad, and I was part of the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. And my commander at the time was someone who's been in the news quite a bit recently uh, with the, the fall of Afghanistan. He's been a frequent uh, TV commentator, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, who was uh, the 
national security advisor under President Trump before he uh, left under a bit of pressure. There was a, a fire McMaster campaign that he talks about in his book, uh, Battlegrounds. Um, but he was he was very loyal, uh, not uh, he was a very loyal, I think, public servant until the end, tried to stay as, as much out of politics as he could. But when I served under him in Iraq, uh, he had been a very famous Gulf War commander, uh, won the Silver Star for bravery for what his unit had done. So I was literally riding into Iraq with, with a military history legend, and he'd, he'd written a, a famous book on, on the Vietnam War. He was a legendary commander, and I'd served under him in Germany in 2001, when September 11th happened, he was my commander. You know, we were preparing for the possibility of getting on a train and going to war at any time at that point. And when I went to Iraq with him, I went to South Baghdad, and that was very challenging. It was it was known as a, the Triangle of Death, and I was uh, a an S5 uh, civil uh, governance officer for the Third Squadron. Um, and initially, it wasn't that. Um, it was a bit quiet at the beginning because uh, we'd, we'd made a lot of arrests when we went in there. But this was right after the Battle of Fallujah. And uh, our, our squadron suffered a lot of casualties. In fact, my, my vehicle or one of my patrols that I was on got hit. Uh, a bomb destroyed one of the vehicles right next to me. And, and there was a, a, an interpreter that we had who was wounded. Um, and it, it was, it was a, a bit traumatic. And I understood at that point what it meant to be to feel guilty, right? I was the commander of that patrol and someone had gotten injured because of a decision I'd made. And yeah. for good or for bad, I was responsible. And I, I couldn't imagine at that point the the pressure you would feel as a commander when you had soldiers um, potentially dying under you, uh, which I, that had very, very nearly happened to me on that patrol. And then we, we, we had a lot of casualties. I think we lost 13 soldiers in 55 days at wow. one point. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I didn't even know these soldiers at the time, and, and, but I was impacted by it. I think we all were. And I remember being quite emotional uh, at some of the memorial services, and, and there's all kinds of emotions, uh, anger, uh, the desire to do something about it. Um, and I saw at that point how long these wars would take because soldiers get angry when they lose comrades and, and they want to go out and you know, direct that energy and that emotion into something that they view as productive, which might feel productive, but maybe it's not in terms of psych, you know, cycles of violence take a while to unwind themselves, if ever. And um, I remember my my second tour at the end of my second tour, uh, my commander called me into the office and he said, hey, you know, um, uh, he said Rowdy Inman, uh, one of one of the other commanders was killed. Um, and he, he explained to me what had happened. I remember walking out of the office and, and I, I thought back to myself. I said, why am I not feeling this or crying or, or getting emotional about it? Compared to my last tour, I was crying over people that I didn't know who were in our unit who, who we'd lost. And I remember just realizing that I'd figured out how to numb, you know, or to uh, let's let's say paper over or concrete, you know, drill. You know, it's like you've got a pothole in a road and you just put some more concrete over it. So I, I'd figured out how to just deal with emotions by stuffing them, I guess. And that's that's what I think in the military you do. I think that's what people do in business and in life in yes. general. I don't think that's um, unique to the military, but we are very good at it. And uh, I remember we'd go to these memorial services and everyone would wear sunglasses, uh, even though it was almost dark. It, it wasn't really 
for the sun, it was so that people could, you know, hide their emotions uh, behind the sunglasses. And I remember soldiers would go to to hug each other after they'd um, saluted the dog tags, the famous photos of saluting dog tags, and and um, and then they'd slap each other in the back really hard because that made it less, uh, let's call it, you know, less less uh, feminine or not not so masculine to slap each other on the back. And there were these very loud claps on the back during this memorial service with, you know, beautiful music and kind of some somber moments. So I think that was my, uh, it was a very sad period. Um, I was in charge of writing the letters back uh, to the families for General McMaster and, and Colonel McMaster at the time. And, you know, I'd get stuff wrong and there'd be some things. So he'd get quite emotional over mistakes in the letters, but really he was just emotional over um, hit the responsibility he felt um, as a commander. So when I went back my second tour, having observed that and basically been a part of all the casualty notification processes, uh, visiting soldiers in the hospital, writing letters to families, to children of the families, um, I was quite intent on not uh, experiencing that. And I remember training my soldiers quite relentlessly, probably a bit ruthlessly before the second tour, just to try not to experience that. And and luckily in the second tour, we didn't, uh, my unit at least didn't have casualties, although I I lost two fellow commanders who who I knew quite well, who were were peers of mine. Um, But then there was other things that happened in the second tour in terms of, um, you know, fighting on, I was in charge of combat troops, so we had some some fights with some uh, enemy fighters that we killed and that has a different i think kind of impact um which i didn't really uh process for a long time i didn't really understand how that affected me and the soldiers involved in that because we just tried to dehumanize um the enemy a bit uh, because it made it easier to do that Mm so so yeah i i I think every soldier who's been to war suffers from three things one is um you know survivor's guilt uh, getting out of a vehicle right before um, someone else is killed, as, as happens happened to me in the first tour, and then you know the second tour, more like um, moral injury from from killing, and and seeing that um, that when you do it, it it almost doesn't feel abnormal. It it feels like um, you were trained to do it, so you do it quite naturally, and then that that kind of scares you, and then you you just forget that that's um, you know, and you, you just think, well, this is part of me now. So, and then I think the final thing soldiers suffer from, and I didn't understand this for a long time, even those who don't see action, didn't come close to, to getting killed or, or had to, had to kill people, I think was, was really loss of connection. I, I don't think you'll ever be in an experience in your life that you, where you feel more connected to a group of other people, uh, that you can trust them. It's certainly not that way in business. Um, there's no no such loyalty in business. Uh, there are some in some really good companies, but you don't need that amount of loyalty and extreme trust in business, although I think that helps uh, in business. It's, it's just not as necessary for, you know, success uh, as in the military. So those were kind of the three things I processed, but I think it took me about 13 years uh, after I got back to kind of understand all that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So hold your thoughts there, Samuel, because I want to let the, the listeners and viewers just kind of sink all that in. And let's grab our first break. I'm Dr. Elise Cortez. We're on air with Samuel Cook. He's the founder of Sanity Desk. We've been talking a bit about some of his early formative experiences that have helped set the stage for some of the things that he does today and his perspective on the matter. 
stay with us after the break we're going to get into some of his perspective on what's necessary in these digital times and a new way forward be right back Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to the program. If you haven't heard me talk about this before, I would like to invite you to check out my book, Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause. It's now on Amazon. I wrote that book to awaken the readers to their passion and their purpose and then to inspire them to become inspirational leaders that actually lead their team to greatness and actually want to come to work. And the content from that book is what I use as a basis for my Vitally Inspired Leadership Program and the Grab Your Gusto Program. If you're just joining the program today, my guest is Samuel Cook. He's the founder, chief product architect, strategist, and storytelling marketer of Sanity Desk Business Operating Network, a full-stack software solution for experts and small small service business businesses. Excuse me, a small stack full-stack software solution for experts and small service businesses to launch and manage their businesses online. It's important to get that right. Joining us today from Los Angeles, California, I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So. You were sharing with us before the break that I wanted to, get, to give our listeners and viewers a chance to soak that in, Sam, because what you went through was so intense. And most of us who have never had that opportunity to serve have no idea what that feels like and what that does to a person. And then the other thing that I want to talk about while we're in that camp is you also told me that you lost your brother. Mm-hmm. Those experiences together have really helped instill in you this steadfast determination to do the things that you really want and to, and to be riveted on those. So what happened with your brother? Well, so when I was, I got back from Iraq in 2008, and I think from 2008 to 10, um, I was living in New York City. I started a tour company. Uh, I was going to graduate school, and and I made this promise to myself at that point that, you know, I'd just gotten back from Iraq. I was, I was in New York City by myself studying at NYU, you know, totally disconnected from the Army, but still in the Army getting paid. And I just made this promise to myself that, hey, I'm I'm going to, you know, do what I want to do in life and not delay it. And um, that's when I started a business while I was in New York City. And it was a tour company. And I, I did the tour company for a while. And I realized that I was fascinated by and, and obsessed with the Internet marketing side of the business rather than the tour company. So I ended up transitioning to running a digital marketing agency. And at the time, my brother was living in at home and he was studying music. He was trying to be a composer. And I think uh, what James suffered from was uh, this sense of doubt about whether or not he was on purpose, right? He was, was he studying music? Was that his, his purpose in life? And um, he thought it was, he was putting a lot of pressure on himself to get it right. And he ended up uh, struggling with, um, I think since he was 18, he'd, he'd been, put on some kind of antidepressants and was struggling with 
you know, getting the chemistry right of different drugs because one would make you sleepy and then you need some some drugs to wake you up. And he was just on this cocktail of of mental health drugs for since he was 18. And and me and my sister always felt like he was just not himself. And it was very frustrating for the family to see you know, going to this drug and then it would it would not be that effective for a while. And I think I think this is kind of epidemic in society. Uh, I've I've done a lot of exploration on my own in terms of my own mental health. I think we all have traumas, not just from the military, but from any area of life. Uh, you know, I think my brother's Great. passing was more traumatic to me than maybe the military stuff. But but at, at that point, um, you know, I remember seeing him. Uh, when I'd started my tour company, he, he needed something to do, or not my, my tour company, my marketing agency, he needed something to do. And he, um, was doing the first work for my agency uh, as an unpaid employee doing some social media posts. And he got all very excited, um, because he felt like he was doing something worthwhile and he was contributing to, you know, business that I, I was starting and was probably what I was going to leave the army to do. Um, and he, he you know, read a lot while he was at home with my parents. He would study all kinds of obscure texts and books. And I remember talking to him and I thought, man, you know, sometimes he was just on some manic, that's almost probably like psychedelic type effects from some of these, these drugs. And he would say some stuff that was, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and I, I was like, wait, I thought this was my little brother who wasn't that smart. And, um, but he was, he was really, I think, I think, uh, when you get into music and composition, you reach into some other sphere where it's, it's, you have so much connection to this emotional sphere of the world that, that, that it can be quite painful. Um, so he, he was on, uh, some mental health drugs that, that started to not work. They put him on a new regimen. He got, uh, high for a while on it. And then, and then he just went downhill. And I remember visiting him at home and, and, um, just I had this weird sense when I looked at him on the way out the door, like he's not well. Uh, and then, you know, three weeks later, uh, they, you know, my parents called me and said, you know, James, James passed away on the way to the hospital. His heart stopped and it wasn't a heart attack. It was just it was something strange. And, and I was pretty upset. Obviously, I, I felt like, um, you know, the mental health big farm industry has not served us well. I think um, I didn't for a while I wanted to pursue uh, some kind of suit or legal stuff. And I just realized that, you know, that's not going to bring him back. And it's, it's, it put, put the, the family through a lot of stuff. So, um, I just, I was leaving the army at the time. So I was kind of mourning the end of my army career. I was starting my agency. Um, I just broke off a, a marriage that was going to happen, uh, uh, a month before my brother passed. And that's actually why I saw my brother right before I left. I was just, um, it was a tough year. It was 2013. And I think the trauma of those three things, you know, mourning the end of your identity as an army officer, mourning your brother's passing and and mourning um, a relationship that didn't work was was kind of it was tough. And um, I remember I was so happy to be finally leaving the army because I'd done what I wanted to do in the army. And, and I, w I felt like digital media was the future for me. Um, but then, you know, these things had happened and I, I was very aware of the trauma from those things. Um, and I was very aware that I was also carrying forward for my brother, you know, one of the things general McMaster used to say when we, at the memorial service, and I, I remember the speeches he would write and I'd help him edit the letters. And he said, you know, let us, 
live a life that, you know, will make their sacrifice not in vain, um, you know, for the freedoms they fought to preserve. And I, I felt the same way about my brother, which was, um, I think for a long time, I felt that, you know, there's al always survivor's guilt you go through where you know, I thought maybe me getting him excited about the opportunity helped deteriorate his mental health. Um, and I think for a long time I held on to that. But then my, my mother told me, she said, you know, he was not well for a while. You know, the year before, we didn't really tell you what we were going through caring for him. And I, I got this new perspective, which was maybe he had, and I remember working with a coach to work through this, I think three or four years later, he said, maybe he just had that one final kind of revelation. Hey, Sam's got this, or, you know, he's going to do, do something with what he was passionate about in the world. And, and James was passionate about art and people doing, you know, great, beautiful things in the world through music, through great literature and stuff like that. So I was just, you know, passionate about helping that community uh, with my agency and now with our software and this kind of creator teacher class, you know, where my, both my parents are teachers and, and, you know, helping people who educate others and, and create beautiful things in the world you know, go forward. So I've got this new kind of perspective that, um, you know, he was just happy at that point and, and he was able to kind of, kind of move on. And I think in, in all these things, it's how you, how you frame it and, and how you, you can't change what happened. I, I can't change the fact that he passed. I can't change what happened in Iraq, but you can, you can make the story productive, right? Um, oh. In terms of how you, how you view that event in your life. Uh, and that's, that's all you can do. Um, so for James, my cause will always be, and, you know, personally what I work through in Iraq and seeing from other veterans, it's going to be, you know, mental health as, as a, um, charitable thing that I'm always interested in. And then that makes what happened to him, you know, his early passing worthwhile, right? And, and how do you make, uh, any event that, that is not, you know, pleasant or painful in your life worthwhile. And I think that's a decision. Um, rather than uh, something you just have to accept. Mm -hmm. Logotherapy tells us, which I'm a logotherapist, tells us that's exactly right. So we get to choose our interpretation of that event. So then now that makes me want to come to the place where we take and sort of weave together this idea that, you know, here you, you, you've had a couple of tours, you were in Iraq, you, you went on later to teach Ukrainian and Russian history. And you actually, because I think it's quite interesting how you talk about how those experiences in your study of, of history um, has taught you so many lessons. And one of the things that Elliot told me that was interesting about what you've stitched together there is she says historical data moves like a pendulum from a me cycle to a we cycle and that you can speak to that. So would you share more about how those are connected? Yeah, so there's a great book called Generations by Strauss and Howe, which were some, some famous historians that, or, you know, uh, researchers that studied how, how, you know, we move in 80 year cycles, um, in history and in, uh, Michael Drew and, uh, Roy H. Williams created a, a much more slimmed down version of this book for business owners and marketers to help understand this kind of historical current that, um, every 40 years things change and, and the pendulum goes back and forth. And right now we are at the height of what is called a we cycle where the collective is is what's important and this cycle started in 2000 and it gave rise to the 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 era of social media and 
only only social media sites could have been born during this period of time and become the biggest companies because everyone was so trusting at the beginning of this era, you know, social media, the Obama you know, political movement, um, and things are kind of idealistic at the beginning of this thing at these movements, but then they start to reach the the heights where things get dangerous and bad and a little bit over the top. And 80 years before 2020 uh, was 1940, and the height of the last we cycle, which started in the 20s um, and reached its 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 zenith in in 1940 was you know gave rise to fascism uh you know national socialists in germany and and the the movement in japan and a world war uh came out of that so you know extreme tribalism us against them kind of mentality um created a huge uh crisis in the world and we don't know yet what's going to happen in this period 2020 i think started out this decade very interesting right and and who knows where history is going to lead us uh, but knowing that what happened before every 60, you know, in 80 years before World War II, you have uh, the Civil War. And then 80 years before that, you have the Revolutionary War in American history. And knowing that and looking at those trends, uh, you can start to see the currents of the ocean a bit, a bit more clearly and kind of get up on the, the top of the ship and, and look out over the horizon and know that where we're heading right now is when social media launched and Facebook launched, um, and Google and all these platforms, they created a whole new world, kind of like the discovery of the new world in, in the 14, 15th century or 15th, 16th century. And they made their own rules, just like the Spanish conquistadors came to the new world and made their own rules. And it, it was sometimes very brutal uh, to be on the other end of those rules. And they took a bunch of gold and they brought in a bunch of slaves and mine, you know, they created a whole ecosystem and economy with slaves and all kinds of things that we look back on and say, that's not a very good way to do things. You know, they brought germs over to the world and 90% of the native populations dead within a hundred years. I mean, extremely kind of law of the jungle type stuff. And what happened in 2000 was the exact same thing that happened with the discovery of the new world was we created this new world called cyberspace. And Facebook came in and Google came in and they said, hey, we're going to create this new asset class, which is called your data. But you don't have any say in what your data is worth. You don't have any knowledge of what it's worth because we're the high priests of this data economy. Mm. And you guys are just sitting here in this little religion or church that we've created. And you have to contribute to this economy. And if you don't, uh, you're a digital caveman. You know, like my older brother who doesn't sign up for Facebook because there's no option for him to say what he wants to share, what he doesn't want to share. He's just not connected to the rest of the world on Facebook. The same thing on Google, on YouTube. They know all of your search history. They're serving you videos that are going to get, keep you on the platform. And in this data economy, the only currency that's valuable is your time. And the logical conclusion of these big data companies uh, for their shareholder value is fundamentally opposed to your mental health online, which is the more time you spend on their platform, the better for their share price. I think we all know from studies that the more time you spend on Facebook and Instagram uh, from movies like The Social Dilemma and other things, and now they're talking about some other, I don't know, metasphere, metaverse, whatever the heck they're calling it, uh, where they just want to dominate your life through, through um, you know, monopolizing your attention and serving you ads in the way that they want to serve them, not in the way that best serves you. Uh, that's starting to cause some real problems. And I think we saw that in 2016 and we saw that again in 2020. And I don't think it's going to get any better. And the only way I think it's going to get better is if one of two things happens is 
the big tech companies understand their obligations to the societies from which they derive their wealth. And they, you know, adopt this idea of conscious capitalism, which you're not just serving shareholders, you're serving, you know, the constituent uh, class of your customers, you know, your users, uh, not just the businesses who buy ads, but the end users who create the value, which is the data. Um, and, you know, your communities, the different countries that you're part of where atrocities and even uh, many genocides have been committed due to social media tools. And you take some kind of responsibility to everyone that is affected by you, not just the shareholders, which wants you to create maximum amount of value. And I, I think what's going to happen in this scenario, and Jaron Lanier talks about this and who owns the future. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff talks about this in the surveillance, her book on surveillance capitalism is either government or society needs to come in and regulate these big tech companies. And I think that you're seeing that in the European Union where they're getting, you know, they're, they're too big to ignore. Mm -hmm. um, and they're starting to fight back a bit against big tech companies and the American government's starting to get there. Um, and you have kind of three worlds emerging as a historian. You have Americans where companies are the biggest spies in the world and, and the government may or may not have a relationship with those companies. I don't know, but you know, there's some, uh, suspicions that you know the CIA potentially has backdoors into all these big tech companies. Then you have China, where the government just straight up everyone knows it owns everything, owns all of your data. They've created a surveillance state, and it's it's just that's the rules of the road in China, and they've kind of accepted that, and they've created this kind of great wall of China. And then you have this kind of weird middle in Europe of all places, where Europeans they're big enough and wealthy enough to fight back against big tech if they get their act together. The government in Europe is pouring in a bunch of money to invest into tech companies to create their own tech ecosystem that really, really respects data. Um, and I think the future of the Internet, as as it comes to digital freedom, and this is ironic because I live in Kiev in Ukraine, which is where all the peasants from the Russian, you know, you know Russian serfs. And I talk about this in a video that, that uh, I'm going to share with you also uh, history video. Uh, when we're like on Facebook, we're just like Russian serfs in 18, you know, in the, in the early 19th century, where you have no property rights, right? You have this digital piece of real estate, which is your profile online. You have value that you create for the ecosystem and all of it's given away, packaged and sold to advertisers. And then they use that to manipulate your activities, political buying, buying cycle and all that kind yeah. of stuff. You have no property rights. Um, you don't own any of the wealth that you're creating for these tech oligarchs and tech giants, and they can kick you off the platform at any time. I got locked out of my Facebook account for 30 days uh, when I was traveling because I forgot to have my old Polish phone number for text message um, certifications. I felt like you know business deals stopped, personal conversations stopped, everything stopped. My mom couldn't wish me happy birthday on my birthday, which she loves to do. Um, and I had no recourse, no court of appeal, nothing. It was just hey, you, you're just a, a, a little surf on our plantation, our digital plantation. And, and I think that that conceit, that, that extreme disdain for the end user by big tech is unsustainable. And I think the future is going to be created by companies that, that view their users in a different way and view the data that they collect from those users in a much better way in terms of privacy if they resell that data, giving some of that value to the users who create it. Okay, awesome. And on that note, we've got to grab our last break here. That'll give us something else to chew on. Amazing what you're pulling up here, Samuel. So we've been on, on the air with Samuel Cook. He is the founder of Sanity Desk. We've been talking a bit now about how he's developed his perspective about data uh, and technology. After the break, we're going to get more into his perspective on how to create a better digital world. 
Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I, w- I want to share with you some other news. I talked about my, my first book on the, the beginning of this. I want to share with you that today I have my second book coming out. It's actually now on Amazon. It's called Passionately Striving and Why. And I'm doing the book launch for it here in Dallas here in a couple of days. But what I'm so excited about is I'm so proud of this thing I could bust. Um, started two years ago where I went out and found 25 women from around the world to share their intimate stories of how they discovered their purpose, all the gory details and how now they're serving from it. So we have this beautiful collection of these 25 stories. And the whole thing is called Passionately Striving and Why, an anthology of women who persevere mightily to live their purpose. So that's out. And that whole thing for me has just been like such a great thing to find all these women. So I'm proud of that. It's on Amazon. Find it. I'd love for you to pick up a copy and tell me what you think. If you're just joining us today, my guest is Samuel Cook. He is the founder, chief product architect, strategist, and storytelling marketer of Sanity Desk. We will, we've been talking a bit about where some of his perspective has come from on technology, and now I really want to get into this whole notion of being able to put it all together, Samuel. So you're a history professional expert. You've taught history. You've served in the military. So you have this very interesting way of looking about how about how the past informs the future and where we're going. So I do want to hear about this notion that you talk about of being part of a, a new stand, standard operating procedure and having a vision for a better digital world. So, and actually, it's, Ellie says, before the current one hypnotizes us into the walking dead. Oh, that's provocative. <laughs> Tell us more about that. Well, look, as, as I explained before, we are prisoners of an ecosystem that's been built that is purportedly serving us because it's free. Uh, but there's there's no free lunch in life. And, and if it's free, then you're they're extracting their money for you from you um, in, in other ways. Now this has happened for a long time. I mean, television for a long time was free and then they put on commercials, but there's, there's a particular ruthlessness to the model that we're serving now where everything's hyper-personalized, you know, to be used against you. And, and, and you see this with, you know, what keeps people online is strong emotions, right? And what's the easiest emotion to rile people? people up is, is hate turning, turning people against each other. And I remember during the pandemic in 2020, um, I was getting in arguments because I think we were all quite at, at our uh, nerves end, you know, in lockdown, isolated or lockdown with people we wish we were isolated from, you know, there were kind of two extremes. Um, and I was sitting there alone and the only connectivity you had to social media. And there were just a lot of people that I really, really respected who I thought to myself, I don't like you on Facebook, but I like you in person. And I had to consciously choose to, you know, forgive that person for what I saw as I I think people, the way our digital world is, I call it anti-social media. I mean, it's, it's, it's constructed in a way where 
and you've put yourself out there. I've, I've put stuff out on Facebook. Like people are really brave behind the, mm-hmm. uh, a, an avatar picture or, or a, a social media profile. And you know that if you met them uh, on a bar or, or on a street and you'd have a completely different interaction and experience of that person. And I think there's just something poisonous about the online world that's been created where it's kind of akin to like the movie Hunger Games where everyone's just being shot out by, by these puppets outside, you know, shooting in advertisement. And I pay for ads on Facebook. I'm one of those people who, who, who engages in paying for ads. But it, it's like if, if nobody's paying for something, it's kind of like the homelessness problem that we is epidemic here in, in California where I am right now is when you don't pay for something, you don't treat it very well. And I think the problem online is people don't value this free lunch they've been given and therefore they treat each other poorly because unlike in the physical world where you have your own little piece of property, you pay rent, or if you're a homeowner, you really take care of that because you pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I think the future of, of digital world, and I don't understand why this isn't the case. I think YouTube has a has an ad-free uh, subscription, but I think the future has to be coming back to, there's a great book on this called Trust Me, I'm Lying uh, by Ryan Holiday, which explores a very similar cycle that happened in the late 1800s where they're giving out free newspapers in New York City. And what drove free papers, which, which were run by ads, was sensational headlines. Mm-hmm. And what happened was uh, journalists like Pulitzer came in and created uh, a, a digital or they created a subscription model where your relationship with your readers changes when you have a long-term responsibility to them through a subscription model. And you have to treat them with a much more long-term, um, you know, pastoral even uh care as you would a, you know a pastor at a church my father was a pastor growing up so i got to see that you have to really tend to people's long-term health at, when they subscribe to you and the same thing happened online when everything's free and everything's about clickbait and and social media just perpetuates that so i i think the future is 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 either going to be created by a bunch of new tech companies i think arising out of europe that are sick of the american toxic social media stew that we've created to create a better online experience where privacy is respected. Uh, You don't have to sell your data like that is an option. And if you do sell your data and you create value on that platform, people will get paid for that. Some kind of universal basic income to be online, because if they're going to automate all of our jobs away, like Andrew Yang says, uh, and, and you can see that happening with the efficiencies of manufacturing and even artificial intelligence, you know, hollowing out white collar jobs now, people still need to do something. And and if they're going to be online and creating all this wealth for this elite tech oligarchy, uh, why not share some of that with them? So I think the future is really going to move towards treating people who are creating all this massive wealth, uh, you know, that people are using to go to outer space and all these other places um, as as much more equal stakeholders. Um, And I think the with the labor movement history in Europe and, and all kinds of other things, which Americans would call socialist, but um, I would just call, um, you know, a different way of looking at the world that, you know, has created some great societies. If you happen to travel over here uh, is probably the future. I've got this strong feeling and that's why I'm in Europe and Ukraine specifically where the talent pool is so rich. The engineers are, are better here per capita than anywhere else in terms of the value you get the, the world-class talent. And this, you know, disdain for data theft and spying, which comes for people who lived under communism and some really like they've seen from the last we cycle 
when stuff goes really wrong, how bad it can get. Right. So they're they're scarred from that and they're determined not to not to repeat that. And, and I think that's where the future is going to be created, just like in the 50s and 60s, you know, the 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 beat generation started out drumming the beat about individuality and then it turned into you know the 60s and it was kind of idealistic then it got a little bit crazy with michael jackson and madonna and the material world um you know greed was the logical extreme of of that movement but but there's got to be this move towards like respecting the individual again that i think is going to come back and i think i think that future is going to be created in europe a lot of european tech startups and american investors are going to be smart to bet on some of these uh, you know, undervalued and, and greatly undiscovered um, ideas that I think are coming out of a society that the Americans might have written off as like the old world. But I think that the future is actually going to be created here in Europe. Mm, wow. Okay. So now having said all of that, Samuel, how does all of this that you've experienced and learned relate to what you're doing at Sanity Desk? So it's, it's, what it's doing at Sanity Desk. Well, at Sanity Desk, look, I, you've got one shot at life, and and my perspective is this is this is the big idea I've arrived at at the perfect perfect moment of my life. So so you know to make a big goal and to live uh, a life that's worth living, you know, for for all the all the the people that I saw who who don't have that opportunity. So so my goal is to make some small dent on bringing the world of business online back to where the balance is back in favor of the small business owner, right? Because right now as a small business owner, I think Shopify is one of the, the good guys out there where they're they're putting the power back in, in the hands of small business owners who fill, sell physical goods. We want to be what Shopify is for the physical goods world to the experts economy, right? So we are the place where you can go for free, set up your entire business, don't pay anything until you start getting some traction online. It's just simple, easy, you own your data, everything's secure, and we give you the tools that big tech has given to you on Facebook. But unlike Facebook, you own your property on our system. Um, so you pay when you start getting results and traction. It's a much more fair way for people to build their real estate online, creating hyper-personalized experiences for their end users. So you can start to mirror that user experience that people are used to on Facebook, but they hate it because of what Facebook does with your data. So really trying to draw people out of these big platforms where you're just becoming part of a data machine um, and, and really creating um, a world where small business owners can create amazing customer experiences for their customers and not pay a bunch of money at the beginning to get started. Uh, is how we want to do it. And in the next 10 years, we want to put 100 million users on the platform. Uh, every small business owner who sells their time for money as part of the knowledge economy, we want to get them. We're just the natural place they go to get set up. And that's our vision over the next 10 years. That's how we want to make some small difference in history. Because if, if we don't do this or some other companies don't do this, I think we're heading for a, a bit of a dark dystopian future where we're just part of some data machine that eats itself. Mm -hmm. Wow, I love it. Totally up to something in life. Okay, we're almost out of time, but I gotta make sure to have you talk about that you've been selected for the LA Tech Stars. What's that all about? And real quick, because we've got like two minutes left. I'm yeah, I'm in LA. I'm in, I'm in LA. We were, uh, I guess our vision resonated with, with uh, Techstars, Matt Kozlov, the managing director of LA Techstars, selected us 12 uh, companies out of 800 who applied. So we're in the middle of this. It's a three-month, very intensive program, 13-week program. Uh, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to open up our fundraising campaign to raise money from investors and venture capitalists who um, believe in you know, our crazy 10-year uh, vision and, and want to back someone who wants to 
you know, make a better, fair digital future that that puts the power back in the hands of the smallest businesses. So that's what we're doing right now. And um, it's it's an absolute amazing program. If any of you are a startup founder, uh, uh, do apply for Techstars if, if you, you know, want to get help building your company. It's it's definitely an amazing experience. Oh, my gosh, Samuel, thank you so much. We are out of time. I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for coming on and, and sharing your, your your vision, your heart, your purpose, everything. It's been amazing to have you and learn from you and be inspired by you. Thank you. Thanks, Elise, and, and thanks for this amazing uh, podcast and the topic. Uh, you know, from my experience with seeing how this affected my brother and uh, just, you know, so many people don't have the opportunity to, to keep you know, keep going in life, um, not of their own free will, right? And and I think that should inspire all of us to to do what you're encouraging us to do, which is uh, don't spend another day, um, you know, wasting wasting your life with something you're not passionate about doing. And and that's uh, easy to say, hard to do. And I, I admire you for putting that out there. You're so welcome. Thank you all for for and thank you for caring and noticing because I do love what I do. It is my purpose. It's my jam. If you'll learn more about Samuel Cook and the work he and his team are doing at Sanity Desk, you can start by going to sanitydesk.com. If you're watching this, he's put a, an offer URL up there as well. What's that URL again, please, Samuel? It's it's for our free software. We're releasing a free version of our software at the end of September here in 2021. So okay. our software is free to get started. Um, okay. Yeah. And so you so, go freemium option too. Okay. And thanks again to our partnering sponsor, WorkProud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback and thanks from, for their work from people across your company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can catch it via recorded podcast. We were on the air with Daniel Sanderson talking about the new media platform he built called PlankSip. Next week, we'll be on the air with George, uh, Jeff Tuff and Stephen Goldbach, both from Deloitte Consulting, and talking about the book they co-authored, Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.